If you will join me in Mark chapter 15, we're going to read uh, verses 15 through 20. Um, I think it's important to catch 15 again as we, as we get through verse 20. But I want to talk to you this morning about what is happening at the cross. You know, we read the Old Testament and we see two streams of promise. We see the promise that the nations that are allied against God and His anointed Son, that they will be vanquished, that they will face wrath for their sin, that they will be condemned, that they will face judgment. And, and on the other hand, we see this promise of hope for salvation of the nations. And we see this day of the Lord that, that seems to be filled with the hope and the promise of salvation for God's people and also filled with the horror and the terror of the judgment that will fall against those who are wicked. And yet we know there's none righteous, no, not one. And so who is it then that's going to be saved? And how is it that God is going to mete out His justice against the nations and the wicked, and yet all, there will be salvation available for all nations? It, it seems as though the Old Testament presents for us two promises that seem to be, quite frankly, a bit at odds with one another. And the answer to how it is that God can make available salvation for people from all nations, and yet also judge rightly, the nations who are against him, the answer is his son. And what we see happening in Mark chapter 15 is the day of the Lord that that one day we will all face at God's return. Either it will be a day that is great or a a day of great mourning. That day is already being faced in all of its terror and its wrath and its, its justice is being faced for us by God's son. And so you I've titled this message, Jesus, Our Substitute, Part 2, but you might just call it, The Day of the Lord Descends on the Sun. The Day of the Lord Descends on the Sun. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they put the purple robe, took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Would you pray with me? God, we ask in the moments to come that we would see how incredibly beautiful and faithful Jesus is, even in bearing the mocking and the shame that we deserved. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to slow down in the next few weeks as we work our way through the remainder of Mark's gospel, and we're going to ask that the Spirit would help our minds and our hearts to marinate in the horror and the wonder and the victory of the cross. Horror, because we see the depth of our own sin 
in what it costs Christ to bear it. Wonder because we cannot get our minds entirely around the love that God has for us in Christ and victory because death and sin are ultimately defeated by Christ at the cross. In verse 15, Pilate has Jesus scourged. He sends him away. Scourging was a merciless preparation for the crucifixion. Some, in fact, who were condemned to be crucified never made it to the Roman cross because they could not survive the scourging. In the scourging, the prisoner was stripped of his clothes, bound to a post, and beaten with a leather whip woven with bits of bone or metal. As Edwards writes, the scourging lacerated and stripped the flesh, often exposing bone and entrails. And while Jesus faces enormous physical pain, the focus of this passage, you'll notice, is not so much on his physical pain as it is on the spiritual and psychological agony of taking upon himself the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus stands in our place and takes the ridicule and the humiliation and the alienation that our sin deserves. You see, church, the cross reveals not just God's incredible love, but also how terrible and how laughable our sin is before an infinitely holy and perfect and righteous God. And so for us this morning to appreciate what Christ accomplishes for us by going to the cross, we must understand that Christ willingly received the ridicule that our sin deserved. Christ took the humiliation and the ridicule and the scoffing that we deserve for our sin. And secondly, we must gratefully offer Him the worship that He is due. First, we we need to see that Christ is taking our place in being mocked and ridiculed. The soldiers who are responsible for getting Jesus' mangled body to the cross first take Him to the praetorium to make sport of His death. The praetorium is a military leader's outpost, his tent or his headquarters. At the end of verse 16, we read that they called together the whole cohort, roughly 600 Roman soldiers, to take part in the mocking of the king of kings. Now you've got to understand that the Roman Empire is comprised of all sorts of different nationalities, right? It's this budding, sprawling complex. It's this dominating presence on the world stage. And so these soldiers represent soldiers from all kinds of tribes and tongues and language and nations. And here we have the nations mocking the Son of God, mocking the King of glory. We've got to bear in mind as we read through this text that Jesus could have called more than 12 legions of angels at any moment. In fact, he could have killed all these soldiers with a word. And he could have done it with no angelic assistance whatsoever, for he is God. But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus allows the soldiers to mock him. None of this makes sense unless we understand that Jesus is willingly taking the place of sinners and bearing God's wrath in their place. Why else would he stay there? The Old Testament promises a day of the Lord is awaiting the wicked, a day when the wicked will face the wrath of God. 
In Isaiah 13, 9, we read, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate sinners from it. In order that our sinner, our sinfulness and our wickedness, those of us who are sinners, could have a standing in the land. Somebody had to be exterminated from it. And so Jesus bears our sin and becomes exterminated so that we could then have a standing in the land. Jesus becomes sin for us so that God can fulfill His promise to exterminate sinners and yet also offer a way for sinners to be saved. As Peter writes, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And His suffering, Jesus' suffering, meant bearing all that our sin deserves. You see, for God to keep His promises, the wicked must face the horrors of the day of the Lord. This is a day, and this is something we don't talk about very often in church because it makes us uncomfortable. But it's something that I think we need to hear more often, quite frankly. The day of the Lord is a day when God laughs in vindication of His perfect holiness. Psalm 2 promises, He who sits in the heavens laughs, He scoffs at them. In Psalm 37, 12 and 13, we read, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Psalm 59, 8 says, But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all nations in derision. Did you know it is right and just for a holy God to laugh at all the sinful insurrection in the world? Who do we think we are to question a perfectly righteous and holy God for judging sin? Oh, it was just a little lie. It was just a little while on the computer. It was just one night on a business trip. But before a holy God, before a perfectly righteous and sinless and holy God, our sin is heinous. It is dreadful, it is despicable, it is wicked, it is damnable, it is a mockery of God that must not stand. And there is a day that those who do not trust in Christ but persist in their wickedness, they will hear God laugh. Who do you think you are? Paul writes in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever man sows... This he will also reap. One day the unrepentant wicked who mock God with their sin will reap God's mocking laughter at the audacity of their wicked rebellion. And yet while the wicked will be mocked for their arrogant claims to self-rule, to be their own king while rejecting the king of kings, we know, praise God, That the heart of God is not one which wants to laugh at sinners. It is not one which wants to condemn sinners. But He wants to save sinners. And so He leaves the glory of heaven on a rescue mission. We read in Ezekiel 33.11, Surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from their ways and live. Jesus takes the mocking that our sin deserves In order to make a way for us to turn to God and to live. Here in these verses, the soldiers mock 
Jesus because they believe that Jesus thinks too highly of himself. But Jesus is receiving the mocking that we deserve for thinking too highly of ourselves. Jesus allows the soldiers to mock him as though he is not a king. So that God can accept us as though we are not presumptive sinners. They take Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they dress his battered and bleeding and naked body in purple. Purple is the color of royalty. It was the most expensive of the ancient dyes. With their actions, the soldiers are saying, Okay, Jesus, if you think you are a king, then we're going to give you the royal treatment. Like the high priest and, the, and Pilate before them, the soldiers think that they are gaining the upper hand over Jesus, but they are actually declaring who He is. He is a king, and they wrap Him in purple. Jesus lets them do this so that He can clothe us with His righteousness and give us a standing in His kingdom. Paul says this, if we died with Him, if He bore the mocking that we deserve, we will also live with Him, and if we endure, we will also reign with Him. John in Revelation adds this, You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Because the King of kings takes our place, we can have a standing in the kingdom of God and reign with Him. This is made clear in the placing of the crown of thorns upon Jesus' head. They robe Him in purple, and then they place a crown of thorns upon His head. Did you know that people have been living with thorns since Genesis 3? It's a sign of the curse and the scourge of sin. Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden and into the wilderness where the thorns grow because of sin and living among the thorns. I don't know how many of you have a backyard with woods or a garden, but I hate thorny weeds and trying to get through the, our, our backwoods with the kids. The one thing I can't handle is getting snagged on thorns. You want to be out there in shorts, it's hot, and then there's thorns. Thorns are a sign that we live in a world that has been wrecked by sin. In Joshua, the prophet promises Israel that if they cease to obey God, the Lord your God will not continue to drive the nations out from you, but instead the nations will become a snare and a trap. Now listen to this. And the nations will whip your sides, and they will be thorns in your eyes. Do you see what Jesus is doing for His people? He's taking the whipping upon his own sides. He's taking the thorns pressed down upon his head and no doubt into, uh, at least in front of his eyes. He is becoming a curse so that we don't have to be. In this moment, Jesus lets the soldiers of the nations put the thorns into his head and no doubt his eyes to free us from the curse of sin. Aiken says this, the crown of thorns pictures God's curse on sinful humanity now being placed down upon Jesus. Jesus takes the crown of thorns so that we might receive an unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4, so that we might forever celebrate His victory in His kingdom. But the soldiers, they don't see it. In verse 18, they mockingly, mockingly hail Jesus as King of the Jews as they would have hailed Caesar Hail, King of the Jews. Here's what they're saying. Jesus, you 
think you're king of the Jews, but look at what we're doing to you right now. How could you proclaim to be royalty? In verse 19, they take a reed or a rod, which is a sign of the king's scepter. It's a sign of the king's authority. And they beat him with the sign of his own authority. Now what's amazing is that Jesus is allowing himself as God to be beaten. None none of this is happening without his authority. And so in some crazy ironic sense, what is happening to Jesus, what they are signifying is exactly what is happening by his own authority. He's allowing himself to take the mocking and the beating and the scourging so that we don't have to. But even as they mock Jesus, though they don't see it, they declare that Jesus is king. He alone is qualified to wear purple. He alone will wear the crown. He alone will have the scepter forever. The mocking continues. Like the Sanhedrin the night before the soldiers spit on Jesus. And we know that Jesus is allowing this to happen because he's fulfilling Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my Cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Why does God allow this to happen? J.C. Ryle says it's so that we, the poor, sinful children of men, believing on Him might be delivered from the pit of destruction and the torment of the prison of hell. It was so that we might be set free from every charge in the day of judgment and be presented faultless before God the Father with exceeding joy. Jesus is mocked as a pretender so that on the day He returns again, we don't have to be. And when we really understand that Jesus is our substitute, that He stood in our place, when we look to the cross and see that it should have been us, that is what produces real worship. Real worship. But I want to ask you to consider something this morning. The mocking is more than the purple garment. It's more than the thorny crown. It's more than the taunting or even the spitting. Did you notice that their mocking even includes kneeling and bowing? The soldier's mocking includes the appearance of worship, which is not really worship at all. And that got me thinking as a pastor. Is it possible... If kneeling and bowing can actually be mocking, that Jesus could also be mocked with our singing and our giving and our preaching. Is this not an invitation to ask ourselves, is our worship really worship? Is this not an invitation to examine our own hearts and ask, is my being here motivated by what God did for me and His Son on the cross? 
Is my participation in the choir? Is my singing of a solo, playing of the organ or the piano or the preaching of the gospel or the sitting in the pew or the standing or the reciting of a prayer, is it not motivated by what the Son of God bore in my place? And if that's not my motivation, then God help me because it's nothing more than the mocking of the kneeling and the bowing of the soldiers. Of all the things that have happened to Jesus, I wonder if the kneeling and the bowing stings Him the most. All that He is enduring for us. All the wretched sin that He bears for us. And the soldiers mock Him by pretending to give Him the very thing that He deserves. Worship. I wonder if what passes for worship sometimes looks to Jesus like the kneeling and the bowing of the soldiers before they lead Him out to be crucified. Just because we gather and we read and we pray and we sing the right words does not make it worship. Worship is not a show. It is not a performance. It is not entertainment. It is an overwhelming response of gratitude to God for what He's done for us in Christ at Calvary. And all else falls short of worship. Jesus is mocked even with bowing and kneeling. Not everything that looks and feels like worship is worship, church. Even as he endures the pain, can you see Jesus' face for just a moment? Faintly smile through his parched and lacerated and fat and bloody lips. A smile that says, yes, yes I am the king of the Jews. And soon the nations will not kneel and bow before me as those who mock me, but as those who mourn their sin that put me here, as those who rejoice that I have died and set them free, and those who gladly follow me as king. This morning I'm calling us church back to the heart of worship to reflect on what Jesus did for us at Calvary and say if that doesn't motivate my worship, then I'm going to wait till I'm motivated by that. In order to worship. Worship is genuine and grateful response to God. For what he has done for us in Christ. Because Jesus has borne the shame of our sin. I want you to get this church. Because Jesus has borne the shame of our sin. The cross changes our relationship with sin. Do you get that? I can't confess my sin. I can't repent of my sin. I can't tell anyone what I've done in my past. Why? The shame and the mocking and the scorn that your sin deserves has been borne by Jesus. And because He has already taken your place, He has freed you. He's liberated you to hate your sin. To repent of your sin. And to fight against your sin and the power of the Holy Spirit day by day. When we really understand and believe That Jesus has already faced down the humiliation and the shame and the mocking and the scorn and the taunting of our sinful arrogance. We no longer want to participate in that sin. In those thoughts and behaviors and attitudes and actions that required the death of Christ. And then when we give in to that temptation, when we fail, and you will fail. 
Your pastor fails, you will fail. But when we fail, we remember that Jesus has already paid the price to give us bold and confident access to God. Our access to the Father is not predicated on what we are doing. It is predicated on what Christ has done. And when we fail, we've already been liberated to repent and to confess and receive the atoning, forgiving healing that only God gives through His Spirit and to move forward in real worship because of what Jesus has already done done on the cross. Some of us are so frustrated in our Christian walk because we've forgotten the liberty we have to repent of our sin and then move forward for Jesus. Are y'all here this morning? Because I, I am burdened that we've spent too much time pretending and we've got a God who is worth worshiping. He has forgiven our sins and cast them as far as east is from west. And we're not excited about that? Wake up, church. We do not hide our sin. If if there's sin standing between you and a, a pure, hot relationship with God this morning, let today be the day that you come and confess your sin. we got one life to live. Let's live it for the glory of God. We don't hide our sin, but we boldly confess it because the shame and the embarrassment and the mocking that your sin deserves has already been born in Christ. This changes how you parent, church. It changes how you grandparent. It changes how you great-grandparent. Yes, sin is real, and your kids are going to sin, but please let your children know that when they sin, they can come to you because Christ has already borne the shame that it deserves. Don't raise a child who's so afraid of telling you what they've done that they never confess their sin to you because they're afraid of the wrath that you're going to give them. Are you with me, church? Jesus bore the shame. There's nothing your kid's going to do that you haven't already done. They need to be able to come to you and find the forgiveness of a heavenly Father who did not spare His own Son in order to take their sin. Worship then, churches. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the nice publications. It's not about the prelude or the pews or our past programs or even a great performance. Worship is about Jesus who gave his life to take away our sin and give us access to God, period, end of sentence. Worship is responding genuinely and gratefully to the overwhelming sacrifice that Jesus made to rescue us and to make us His people. Worship is bowing and kneeling our hearts in grateful adoration of Christ, our Creator and Redeemer, presenting our whole selves to God, our financial selves, our business selves, our married selves, our parenting selves, our sexual selves, our entertained selves. To Him, we present all of this as living sacrifices, all motivated by the wonder of a Savior who first loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Paul, in reflecting on this, prays for the church that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, listen to this, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. When we really consider how much God has loved us in Christ... We stop trying to earn our standing before God and we start enjoying the standing that He's already given us. The love of God goes beyond knowledge, Paul says. Do you get that? 
The only appropriate response to the mind-blowing love of God for us in Christ is genuine, grateful, wholehearted worship. It's living for Christ and doing whatever Christ would ask of us so that others would know Him because Jesus is worth all we could ever give Him and infinitely more. Because of Jesus, church, from this day until that day that He comes again, sinners who repent of their sin and worship Christ can say, Oh, I'm fear, not I'm fearful of that day, but rather the Lord has taken away His judgments against us. He has cleared away our enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in our midst and we will fear disaster no more. If you don't know, That your sin and your shame and the mocking that it deserves has already been born for you in Christ. Then why would you wait another day to repent of your sin. And know that you will join those on that last day who sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Don't let another day go without knowing that your shame has already been taken by Christ and that you've been delivered so that you might worship Him forever more. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we ask God that our worship would be acceptable in Your sight. God, that it would be a sweet-smelling aroma. And God, if there's Christians here who've been hanging on to their sin or trying to cover up their sin as though they need to cover it. God, help them to know that you've already taken it in Christ. It's already been covered. And God, if they will confess and repent, they'll find joy anew. A refreshed walk with Jesus, God. And for others who've never turned from their sin and looked to the cross and found true hope, God, I pray today they would trade their sin And take up the righteousness of God that's available in Christ. And be saved forevermore. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.